This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number five, dated May 7th in the year of our Lord, 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. I'm pleased to bring you this report of my recent labors in the Lord. Here's a synopsis. I've been preaching about wrestling with God in a good way, like Jacob did, as though your faith depends on it, which it does. I've been reading different versions of the Bible, and it's reminding me of what distinguishes one translation from another and which distinctions are more important than others. I've been hearing Vivaldi's Concerto for Lute in D Major, RV 93, and I have to say, I think it's best the way the Master wrote it. I've been playing Dead of Winter. I probably couldn't survive a zombie apocalypse, but I think I could find purpose fighting one battle at a time. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes, or sandals, or whatever. He spent 20 years hiding from his family, and here he is by the, by the river Jabbok, separated from his family because evidently it's safer for them. He's isolating himself in preparation for meeting his brother the next day, the same brother that 20 years before the last time he saw him was trying very hard to kill him. We're not told why he separated himself like this, but it's reasonable to guess. A spiritual man like Jacob, a man of faith, a man of purpose, it seems like he's devoting himself to prayer, to spiritual contemplation. And something strange happens on the other side of the river. It is as though his spiritual yearnings, his spiritual fight becomes physical. A representation of God in human form appears before Jacob. And he wrestles with this man, this angel, with God himself, depending on the way you want to look at it. He wrestles all night. And he fights this being to a draw. And as the day begins to dawn, God cheats and dislocates Jacob's thigh. He's disabled. He can't possibly win now. But he refuses to quit. And he says on that occasion, we have it in Genesis chapter 32 and verse number 26, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So Jacob realizes what's going on here. This is not simply a wrestling match. This is a fight for faith. And he knows that his connection to God is not necessarily permanent. Yes, God has been watching over him for 20 years, ever since he left home. God has blessed him with family. God has blessed him with riches. But it has not been an easy journey. He's had to fight and claw every step of the way. And here he is at the end of this part of the journey, at least. And it seems like the greatest fight of all is still in front of him. He needs God in his life. And it seems in the moment that he does not have God. And so he, instead of quitting redoubles his effort. He refuses to give up the fight. And because of this, he is renamed. He is no longer the supplanter, the one who takes things that 
people don't think that he's entitled to. Now he's the wrestler. Now he is the one who wrestles with God and wins. Not in a negative way, but in a positive way. Someone who is determined to find God's place in his life and to find his place in God's heart. That's what faith is. And I assure you, you're going to find yourself by the River Jabbok one of these days, if you haven't already. And don't let anybody tell you that faith and works somehow are, are at opposite ends of this philosophical battle here. Faith is the biggest work you are ever going to accomplish. Faith will wear you out. Faith will exhaust you. It will leave you panting by the side of the road. But if you really want the blessing, you will continue to fight. Now, I don't know if God's plan for you particularly or God's plan for me particularly is as specific as Jacob's was. God told Jacob what his plan was for Jacob. He hadn't told me. He hasn't told you. Other than in general terms, he wants you to please him. He wants you to serve him. He wants you to be converted to Jesus Christ. He wants you to go to heaven when you die. He wants that for all of us. And by faith, you can get there. By faith, you can accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. You can put him on in baptism. You can live a life that honors and glorifies God. But there will come a day when that is going to be the hardest thing you have ever done. And you will not see the blessing. But if you have faith, you will dig deep. You will wrestle. You will refuse to let go of God. You will have confidence that at some point, somewhere on this spiritual journey, somewhere in this spiritual wrestling match, God will give you a blessing. That doesn't mean necessarily, by the way, that he's going to alleviate your suffering. That doesn't mean he's going to make the source of your fear go away. That doesn't mean he's going to make your life easier in the short term. Lots of times it works out the other way. We find that out in Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 is Jesus addresses these churches that are giving so much to his cause. And he tells them, yes, I know it's bad and it is going to get worse. But that's when we need faith. That's when we need to dig deep and remember who we are and remember why we are here. Are you here simply because you want your life to be easy? Are you, want, are you here simply because you want Jesus to take care of you in the short term? Or are you here because you love the Lord? And because you are committed to his plan in your life? God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. You may not recognize those gifts in the moment. It's quite likely that you will not. But they are there. And so in your hour of suffering, in your hour of trial, in your hour of doubt... Find your faith. The easiest way, of course, the simplest way, is to read your Bible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 17. I'll continue to quote that virtually every one of these podcasts because that's what it's all about. Find your faith. Build your faith. Strengthen your faith. And the more you connect yourself to God through faith, the more you will have confidence that these hours will pass. And at the end of this journey, and perhaps even in the middle of it, you will find resolve, you will find purpose, you will find joy even. Because you know you are a partaker in a plan that is far bigger than you. You are a partaker of faith. You're a partaker of heavenly things. God will give you the blessing if you wrestle him for it. Anyway. 
That's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. For most of the last 40 years, I have been a strict New American Standard Bible kind of guy. Uh, the overwhelming amount of the preaching that I've done has been out of the NASB. I've flirted briefly with one version or another, and I keep coming back home. I believe that is the, the version that is the best blend of accuracy and readability with the emphasis on accuracy, which I firmly hold is the most important value in a Bible translation. However, over the last couple of years, I have found myself modifying my position somewhat. I have in the past thought that if one version was better than the others, then why not just spend 90 to 95% of your time reading that version? And I still read the NASB more than I read any other Bible. But last year, I committed myself to reading the Bible through all the way within 12 months in six different versions, including the NASB, but also I read the King James and the English Standard Bible uh, and the Christian Standard Bible, and the New Living Translation, and the NIV. And I found something interesting when I was doing that. I found that the lights went on a little bit brighter than they had in the past. I had undervalued the importance of what the proverb writer calls a multiplicity, a plurality of counselors. It's actually quite quite interesting to hear other perspectives including perspectives from sources that you didn't necessarily have a whole lot of use for. I, I've deliberately avoided reading the NIV, for instance, and, and the uh, New Living Translation as well. Those were Bibles that I had uh, maybe not contempt for exactly, but I certainly didn't have a lot of respect for because they are primarily Bibles that are what we sometimes call thought-for-thought -thought translations rather than word-for-word -word translations. And the distinction may be a little bit nebulous, but it's important. A word-for-word -word translation is a... Bible that is given as an accurate as possible depiction of what the ancient language was actually trying to say. And translating a language like Greek into a language like English is is difficult, problematical at its very foundation. But it can be done, and it can be done with, with care and with accuracy, with a, with a certain level of accuracy at least. And Bibles such as the, the King James and New King James and ESV and NASB uh, strive to have that word-for-word -word policy so that the words on the page are, as much as we can, arrange anyway, God's words. The thought-for-thought uh, -thought translations are more along the lines of, we're going to figure out what the Bible is trying to say, and then we're going to phrase that in a way that is understandable to the reader, which may sound on the surface to be the same thing, but it's a very important distinction. Thought for thought is telling you what they think the Bible means rather than what the Bible actually says. And I don't want to hear what some human being thinks the Bible says. I want to hear what the Bible actually says. And there's a distinction there. Now, I say I don't want to hear. The fact of the matter is I hear that all the time. And anytime I hear a gospel preacher, I'm hearing what he thinks the Bible says. The advantage, of course, is I can go back to the Bible itself and read the Bible and see what the Bible says and compare his words to God's words. That's the, the important distinction. And when we appreciate that there is a difference between the words of man and the words of God, then we can read a variety of translations and derive benefit from them. 
And I've found that reading these other versions that are not necessarily word-for-word translations, that are not as careful with the text as they might, they have their value as well. I would not encourage, I would strongly discourage someone actually from using Bibles like this as their primary reading Bible, their primary studying Bible. But they can have a blessing. There are ways in which a non-literal, a non-word-for-word translation may actually be a little bit closer to the text than a, a, as much as we can deliver a word-for-word translation. In Proverbs, or sorry, not Proverbs, but, but rather Psalm 29, verse number 2, I have read this passage for years and tried to debate in my mind whether the worshiping God with holy in holy array is the proper way of looking at this or whether it was worshiping God in the splendor of holiness, whether it's talking about the clothes that the priests and other worshipers would wear or whether it's talking about our attitude of heart. And different versions are going to read different ways. And when I read it in the Christian Standard Bible, where it says, worshiping the God in splendor of his holiness... It occurred to me that maybe even though the word for his may not be present in the Bible, clearly that is the point of the text. We're not talking about our own holiness when we come before God. We're talking about God's holiness. We don't revere ourselves or make sure that we are as holy as we can be. We're acknowledging how holy he is. And that's just one example. And I I like the the CSB a lot. I, I find that to be a very useful version. And similar things can be seen in other texts, in other translations, even relatively liberal translations. I wouldn't necessarily encourage somebody to read the message, uh, certainly not as a, as a primary reading Bible. But I'm also confident, and the more Bibles that, I'm, that I read, the more confident I become of this, that God is capable of preserving his word. And God is eager to preserve his word. Nobody's going to go to hell because they read the wrong Bible. I'm absolutely confident of that. Someone's going to go to heaven or hell based on their own commitment toward God. God is capable of saving souls. He tell, Paul tells Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. He, he is able to reach those souls who are looking for the truth and find them with his word. That's why we keep turning to Acts chapter 2, verse 38 in every version you can find. And it keeps saying the same thing. The wording is a little bit different here and there. But when people ask what they're supposed to do to be saved, Peter keeps telling them the same thing. Repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The the terminology changes a little bit and the theology certainly changes depending on the, the reader. But what the Bible actually says is remarkably consistent. And that's just one example. We could turn to all kinds of other examples. Yes, there are differences. That's Because human beings are different, human beings are flawed, everybody makes mistakes, all translators uh, have flaws of of procedure, and uh, maybe their scholarship is not quite what it ought to be. Everybody's going to make mistakes. We're human beings, we're fallible. Translations are not inspired. The Bible is inspired. That being said, God is capable of preserving his word and making sure that it comes across to the reader. He wants to save us. We need to emphasize that. Isaiah chapter 55, verse number 10 and 11 reads, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without water in the earth and make it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. God's word works. Human beings have tried deliberately and accidentally over the years to interfere with God's word, but God's word continues to work. The power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16, is still powerful. It will still save. 
And I think you can set yourself up for success by reading a Bible that is attempting to tell you exactly what God's word is, flawed though their, their, their scholarship may be. I think you have a lot, you make it a lot easier on yourself by reading a Bible like that most of the time. But have confidence in your God. Have confidence in the one who sent the Bible in the first place. If you devote yourself to God, if you devote yourself to the things of God, God is capable of saving you. Now, faith will come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's, it's not going to come to you automatically. It's not going to come to you in your bathroom mirror. It'll come to you in God's word. So find God's word. Find a good version of it. Read it. Read it over again. Commit yourself. Allow God to speak his words to you. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. You might have been able to pick up my inclination toward classical music if you've been listening to the podcast. I have a variety of favorites. I like Wagner, I suppose, although he's not my absolute favorite. I fell in love with Mozart after watching the stage production of Amadeus when I was 16 years old, and he was my favorite for years and years and years. After that, I returned to Beethoven, who I grew up on to a certain degree, listened to a lot of Beethoven symphonies and, and other music over the years. Uh, but in the last few months, I have found myself listening to a lot of music by Antonio Vivaldi. Maybe it's because I played a lot of violin in middle school and high school. Uh, maybe it's just because I, I like the Baroque style. At any rate, uh, Vivaldi is, uh, uh, he's who I listen to these days if I want to relax, if I want to, to take a nap, or if I want to just drown out the noise of the world and, and focus on nothing. Uh, the trouble is, you listen to the same piece of music a lot, and you find yourself focusing on the music, which kind of defeats the purpose sometimes of listening to the music. But focusing on Vivaldi is not a bad thing either, especially the uh, concerto for lute, or concerto for guitar, depending on whether you have a guitar or a, a lute being played at that particular time. A concerto in D major. It's coded RV93. If you do a search on YouTube or whatever for uh, Vivaldi 93, you'll get a wide selection. It's a very popular uh, piece of music. It's one that you hear a lot. It's one that I took notice of first, probably, when I saw a very young Robert Carradine playing it on his guitar for his cow herding buddies when they were on the trail with John Wayne in the movie The Cowboys. That's the second movement, the Largo movement, which is probably, at least I, I hope you understood that. Search it on the line, you'll, you'll, you'll hear it a lot better than, than I can perform it on the lute or any other instrument. At any rate, it's a beautiful piece of music. Uh, all the movements, actually, are, are wonderful. You'll probably hear the, the second movement a little bit more often. And, and when I listen to it on YouTube, when I, I do a search for Vivaldi 93 and stuff pops up, and then I, I click one of them and I start to play, one will finish, and then typically another piece of music will, will pop up, whatever's next in the queue. And lots of times it's another version of, of RV 93. And so not only have I heard the music a lot, I've heard a lot of different versions of it. And something interesting happened uh, a week or so ago. I was listening, as I oftentimes do, and I heard a version that I had not heard before, and suddenly I started listening to notes that I had not heard before. 
And it took me back. You, know, you hear the same piece of music a couple of dozen times. You start realizing subtle nuances and sometimes not necessarily all that subtle. You realize that maybe there's a bit of a crescendo there that you hadn't heard before, or maybe the, the rhythm is a little bit different. Maybe it's a little bit quicker, or a little bit slower. But in this particular case, there were a lot of extra notes that I had never heard before. And I will confess, I did not go back and look at the sheet music for RV-93 and see which one was more accurate. It's possible, I suppose, that this particular improvisationalist was actually closer to the truth of the music that Vivaldi wrote than, than the others that I'd listened to. But if I hear five or six versions one way and then one version a different way, the five or six are probably accurate. I have confidence that this fellow was taking it upon himself to tweak the music a little bit. And that's what artists do. That's what performers do. I, I understand that. I don't have an issue with that necessarily. Uh, if you were going to sell record albums, for instance, if you're going to create a, a demand for downloads or whatever form you may be presenting your music in, you want to distinguish yourself from, from others. You want to, to make yours a little bit different, a little bit better. And one of the ways that you do that is just by putting your own personality into the music. That, and that's a personal choice. If you want to listen to one, you don't want to listen to the other, that's, that's your decision. It's not, not that big of a deal. I'm not trying to make it a big deal. But it does occur to me that the more improvisation there is, the more artistry, if you will, that there is, the more emphasis we wind up placing on the artist and the less emphasis we wind up placing on the composer and on the work itself. And I think that's an important distinction. Maybe not necessarily when you're choosing a piece of music to listen to in your, in your living room or your bedroom. But when you think about Bible things, it's a very important distinction. And, and I may have touched on this in an earlier podcast. I'll probably could touch on this continually because this is a very important point, for especially for gospel preachers, but not just for preachers, also for those who listen to gospel preaching. There is a difference between the Word of God and the presentation of the Word of God a very important distinction. And sometimes we can get so concerned with our artistry as preachers. We can get so concerned with showing off almost, putting ourselves out there, being the, the, the bell of the ball, being the star of the show, that we can actually take attention away from God's word, which is supposed to be the exact opposite of what we're trying to do, isn't it? Matthew 5 or 16 tells us in a context that is largely focused on evangelism, largely focused on your, your contact with other people, your presentation of Jesus Christ in your life, whether it's through your words or through your example, being the salt of the earth, being the light of the, of the world. Jesus says to his disciples, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. The, the point is not to make sure that people realize how great a preacher you are or how great a person you are, how great a Christian you are. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what he criticizes them for doing uh, over and over again in Matthew chapter 23. We call them uh, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's because they were courting the praise of men. He talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through uh, 5 or 6. He talks about the, the compulsion in their minds to be seen as holy, to be seen as righteous, to be glorified as human beings. And, and that's a, a bit of a, of a touchy subject for preachers because in a very real sense, our whole job as preachers is to be seen. Our whole job is to draw attention to ourselves. But the reason that we do that is for the same reason in large measure that the apostles and other prophets in the New Testament and in previous times were given remarkable powers of the Holy Spirit so that they could draw attention not to themselves but to God's word that they were trying to present 
to those who were lost, to those who were struggling. That's what we are trying to do. If we use a little flourish of rhetoric, if we use special effects, if we use a PowerPoint presentation, whatever it happens to be, there is a fine line, and we can cross that line, where it no longer becomes telling people about Jesus, and it becomes telling people about us. And we need to make sure that we do not cross that line, that we try not to approach that line. The easiest way, of course, to do that is to talk about Jesus as much as we possibly can, to put ourselves down. John the Baptist did this, the greatest of all the prophets. Jesus says he, there's not been a man who's, who's ever walked as greater than John the Baptist. And J John said, he must increase, I must decrease. He knew that preaching Jesus would materially and directly impact his popularity. And he was good with that. He was fine with that. He wanted that to happen. Because he knew it was not about himself. It was not about his own personal work. It was about the gospel. It was about the kingdom. It was about Jesus. And we see all kinds of other examples in the Bible of those who had opportunities to glorify themselves, to vaunt themselves. The Apostle Paul himself, Moses, uh, others that, that had opportunities to put themselves in the spotlight and make themselves to be grandiose, great, uh, greater than they were. And sometimes they did that. Moses himself did that. David did that. And they were castigated for it. And we will be as well. We need to make sure that we maintain our grip on reality, that we maintain our humility before God, before Jesus. Jesus himself describes himself as being meek or gentle and lowly in spirit, lowly in heart. That needs to be our attitude also. And the more we present ourselves to the world as these lowly servants, these ones who are unworthy, just as unworthy as anybody out there in our audience, we can present God's word with confidence, we can present it with skill, but we need to make sure that we present it with humility so that he is always the one who is elevated. This is not about preaching the best sermon that somebody has ever heard or about being the best preacher anybody has ever heard having the most brilliant illustration that anyone has ever heard having people go home with the the voice of this the grand orator ringing in their ears this is about proclaiming jesus christ in his simplicity and his truth and sometimes simpler is better sometimes we need to instead of inserting the extra notes take the notes out allow jesus to speak Allow the Bible to speak. That's where the power is. The power has always been in the gospel. So let the gospel speak and let Jesus save people and let him get the glory. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But... If you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. I hate zombies. And I mean that in every sense of the word, except for the literal sense, and I don't mean it in the literal sense because there are no literal zombies. I'm sure if there were real zombies, I'd hate them too. But I mean as a, as a trope, as a theme, uh, as a plot device. And, and maybe it's because it touches a little bit too close to home. Uh, I think that zombies, from a psychological perspective, uh, represent these, these forces of, of suffering and evil and oppression that, that are slow-moving but yet 
inevitable that they just grow and they spread and they become this, this amoebic force that just dominates everything. Whether you want to talk about, about communism or you want to talk about environmental disaster, you want to talk about immigration, you want to talk about robots taking over, AI, that sort of... That there is a very real sense when we can, that we can feel powerless over forces that are beyond our control. We know that we cannot do anything about this, and that makes us feel impotent, that makes us feel helpless, that makes us despair. I'm not a big fan of that. I don't like the idea of spending my life thinking in those terms. And so I'm not going to plop down $10 to go watch it on the, on the big screen, whether Brad Pitt's in it or not. It's just not, not important to me. I don't want to do that. And I don't especially want to do it in a board game either for the same reason. It's just not a thing that appeals to me. I do like Dead of Winter, uh, which is the only zombie game that we own and likely to remain the only zombie game that we own. Dead of Winter is, is interesting uh, because it is a community activity and because it stays local, it stays small. There is no fooling ourselves into thinking that somehow we're going to win this war. We're not going to win the war. You can't win the war. What you can do is win individual battles in the war. There are zombies that are added to the to the game every single round, and they come in, and, and you try to fight them off, and you, you push them back, and you, you achieve certain objectives, but then they come back in the next round, and, and it keeps going and keeps going. And there's a finite number of rounds that you play, and it's a good thing, because if you played this game long enough, you will die. You'll all die. No matter how well you play, no matter what the, the role of the dice is, you'll die. That's the just the way that it works. And that can be kind of discouraging, as you might think. And the reason it's not discouraging is because Dead of Winter focuses, instead of the big picture, instead of eradicating the zombie, stopping the zombie apocalypse, instead what you do is you focus on daily goals, daily objectives. Instead of getting rid of all of them, or even all of them in an area, you, you're trying to find a certain amount of food or a certain amount of of fuel or, or to have a certain number of people in your compound, whatever it happens to be. And if you can manage to, to keep everybody fed and keep everybody relatively healthy and, and survive one more day, that's all it takes. And you survive another day after that and then another day after that. And before too long, maybe you've won the game if your team hasn't turned against you and, and exiled you, which happens in this game. If you don't have a traitor in your midst, which sometimes happens in this game. You can win. You don't win the big battles, but you win the little battles. I think that that's an important point for us to focus on in the modern day because we get very caught up in all of the very real problems in our world. And I don't want to minimize the problems in this world. We just listed off a, a handful of things that you may be concerned about, that I may be concerned about, but there are many, many others. And there are places in the world where you can go right now where there is no real hope of change where there's no real hope of, of improvement, not in the short term, certainly, and maybe not in the long term either, where people live and die in the same place, just like people did in, in Central Europe 300 years ago, 400 years ago, just like people did in the, in the ancient times, in slave eras, in various parts of the world. Uh, people were not focused on fixing the world. They were focused on making the best of things focused on doing the best that they can in a world that was inherently inhospitable and hostile to them. Maybe it's good, if, it, if we don't get too depressed about it, 
to focus on our daily lives in that kind of way. There is a battle being fought for the world right now, a spiritual battle. And if you are on the side of Jesus, if you're on the side of God, if you're on the side of heaven, you're very frustrated with this, no doubt, if you're paying attention at all. Because you realize how badly this battle is going. And how many battles are being lost and how many souls are dying over this. And it may be that you are living in hope that somehow or another we're going to turn things around. That we will pass the right kind of law or we will win the right kind of, of legal battle or whatever happens. And, and at the end of this, we're going to see the good guys are going to win after all. Isn't this, this wonderful uh, turn of, of events, a shocking revelation at the end and, and close curtain and, and roll the credits and the good guys win? Yes. I have bad news for you. We're going to lose this war. It is inevitable. The battle for earth will be won by the devil. Now, that's not the only battle being fought. And there is a very real battle in spiritual realms that also appears to be going very poorly, but that we know for a fact, because we've been told, we've been told by the person who's already written the end of the story, that God is going to win this battle. The spiritual battle will be won by God. And if we will remain faithful, we can have confidence that ultimately, no matter what happens in this life, no matter how many souls are won or lost, no matter how evil the world gets, no matter how awful our neighbors get, no matter how oppressive government gets, we are on the side of God and we will be victorious in the end. We know that. But that's the heavenly. In the meantime, we live in the flesh. And we can get very discouraged that things are going as poorly as they are. Why aren't more souls interested in salvation? Why can't we convince people to turn to Jesus? Why can't people see the mess that they're making of their own lives, even in the short term and certainly in the long term? Why is it that we have to lose all these battles? And I don't have an answer for you. I'm sorry. Other than people are inclined toward self, toward selflessness, selfishness, toward depravity. And such has been the case ever since Cain. Ever since Adam and Eve, really, when you think about it. So what do we do? Do we quit? Do we just surrender and throw up our hands and say, okay, just go ahead and kill me now and I'll go to heaven? No, God has work for us. God has a battle for us to fight. And, and no, the battles will not always go well in the short term. Within our vision, they will not always go well. But maybe instead of focusing on the world and the problems of the world, what we can do instead is focus on our lives. Focus on what's right in front of us. Focus on our family. Focus on the local church. Brothers and sisters in Christ that we know, that we love, that we're directly connected to. Build up that connection. Strengthen that connection. Build trust. Make sure that there aren't any traitors in the midst. And having that confidence, having that love, having that assurance, build up a foundation of faith, a foundation of fellowship that will keep us sequestered from the world as much as we can. That will keep the evils of the world on the outside while we fight for faith on the inside. Ephesians chapter 6 is one of the places that talks about this battle. Verse 10, 
uh, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And he goes on to talk about the, the armor and the specifics of the armor that he gives us. But this, this pointer here that he gives us is so important. When we get caught up with uh, a particular neighbor or a particular family member, a particular loved one who just refuses to hear the truth, who refuses to turn to Jesus Christ. Don't think of them as the enemy. They're not the enemy. Not really. The devil is the enemy. The warfare is on a spiritual plane. These are casualties of war, of spiritual war. And we bemoan that fact, but we don't blame them for that. We don't hate them for that. We love our enemies just like Jesus told us to. And because we are focused on what is within our control, what is right in front of us, and not discouraged about how the world is going, all we really have to be accountable for is our own faith. All we have to be accountable for is the life that we choose to live, how we fought this battle or did not fight, as the case may be. We can do that. We can maybe not win life's battle, but we can win today's battle. We can accomplish God's purposes today as we go out there and fight. We can live to fight another day. And if God blesses us with another day, we go out there and fight again. And it may seem, it probably will seem, like you're not making much headway. You know what? You may not be making much headway. But that's okay. Because the real battle is spiritual. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, you are allied with God. You are allied with Jesus Christ. And the victory is going to be his. You may not see as much of it as you would like in the short term. But you will see it in time. We have enough faith. We have enough confidence to look beyond the physical, beyond the short term, beyond today, beyond this life, and into this eternal spiritual battle that has been waging over the souls of men and women from the beginning, that has wreaked havoc on so many. We do not have to be casualties in this war. We can live, we can survive, we can thrive, and we can even make some kind of difference in the world that we're living in. Maybe we can drag a few souls to safety. Maybe we can keep them away from the devil's clutches. It's worth a try at least. And may God empower us to do exactly that. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you've profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven. And our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to this podcast and give a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you will find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 pages a week, and Citizen of Heaven. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, The Citizen of Heaven, signing off.